We continue this morning our series on Luke's Gospel. So I ask, if you will, to turn in your copy of God's Holy Word, the Bible, to the third chapter of the Gospel of Luke. Now, the section we've been looking at is the section dealing with the ministry of John the Baptist as the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, just before he begins his public ministry. And this is the third sermon on this section. Now, some of you looking out have missed portions of this, and it would make a lot more sense if you would go back and catch what you have missed Last week in particular, we saw what John preached and why that is still important for us in the church of the Lord Jesus today. But now we come to the 15th verse of the third chapter, and we see this section exalting Christ in some remarkable ways. Will you pray with me? We bow our hearts and heads before you, our Savior, and ask that you will help us to believe our confession when we say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. May every Christian's heart resound with that reality. Believing in the Holy Spirit, who is the creator and the sustainer, believing in the Holy Spirit, who can alone give life to the dead, I believe in the Holy Spirit who can take the word proclaimed and open hearts to receive it. And it is good for us to confess before you that we cannot do these things, that we are totally dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. And so, Father, grow us in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we turn to this text by the work of the Holy Spirit within our hearts who has also given to us this Bible by divine inspiration, without error in the whole and in the part. And grant, Father, that some lost one may find that he is raised spiritually from the dead by the work of the Holy Spirit, effectually drawing him out of darkness and into light, even in this service of worship. And bless through your Holy Spirit that this church will always believe the gospel and preach Christ and worship your name until Jesus comes again. And use us, Father, through the blessed work of the Spirit for the extension of your Son's great name. And may this morning be a great part of that extension, that proclamation. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, the exalted Savior who poured out the Spirit upon his church. Amen. Stand, if you will, with your copy of God's Word, Luke's Gospel, chapter 3, beginning in verse 15. This is the Word of the Lord. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, But he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people 
But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a dove came from heaven, a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Please be seated as we have heard the word of God. people of God, no one can raise Jesus higher than he is. He went to the cross. He was raised from the dead. He ascended on high. He is our great intercessor, and he is infinitely exalted. We cannot raise him higher than he is. Nonetheless, it should be the goal of every Christian to raise him higher and higher in our esteem to raise him higher and higher in our affections, to exalt him more and more in our lives. We want to go low so that he will go higher in our affections. Now, John was committed to this. He was the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ who preached about the one who would come. And as we come to this text, we find that The expectant crowd is looking for the Messiah, and they want to know if John is the one. He happily confesses, I am not the one. I am only a forerunner. I am not not worthy to untie even the shoelaces of his sandals. And so we come to this text, and we see in this entire passage ways in which Jesus Christ is seen to be exalted, seen to be superior, seen to be great. And so that at the end of the sermon today, we should see that our affection for Christ is greater than before having turned to this text. So in three ways, the text points to Jesus' exaltation to his superiority. First, there's this. Jesus' ministry is superior to that of John. Jesus' ministry is superior to that of John. How is this true? Well, he says in verse 16 that he is greater, he is mightier than I. Now, there's more to that than meets the eye. In the Old Testament, there is this relationship between strength and the Redeemer. Jeremiah 50, 34, their Redeemer is strong, the Lord of hosts is his name. In Isaiah 11:2, we are told that Christ, when he would come, would be known because he had the spirit of counsel and of might. So what John is confessing right from the start is Jesus can do, the one to whom I'm pointing can do what I cannot do. I can baptize with water, he will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. I can preach the word, but only he can make it effectual. And this is something that especially the minister of the gospel must constantly be reminded of. He stands in the pulpit. I come into this pulpit this morning with no illusions that I can open a heart, save a soul, change your lives. But I do believe in the message. And I do believe that through that message, God has ordained to speak to some heart this morning, hopefully to all of us, and to say, you are mine and I will not let you go. I am the Savior. I am the Redeemer. Now, only Jesus can do that through the Spirit whom he has poured out upon the church. 
But John the Baptist says to us that there is one who is coming whose baptism is greater than my baptism. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John's baptism is a pointer. Jesus is effectual, and it's effectual in a couple of ways. First, John's is only with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. You will recall in the first chapter of the book of Acts that the Lord Jesus Christ, when he is speaking to his disciples, his apostles, tells them that they are to wait in Jerusalem for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And this is how he put it. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so Jesus is saying that Pentecost is one of the fulfillments of this passage that we have read together this morning in Luke's gospel. And you will recall that it was a baptism of the Holy Spirit manifested through tongues of fire over each of the apostles. They were not judged by it. They were not condemned by it. But the fire was, as it were, domesticated. But John says also that he baptizes with the Holy Spirit and fire. And fire in the scriptures is associated not only with purification, but also with judgment. And he moves on to tell us that Jesus is the judge. So there is uh, another fulfillment of Luke chapter 3, 16 and 17, not only on the day of Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out, but on that day when Jesus comes again in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and obey not the gospel. And so he tells us very clearly, Jesus is greater because he is the judge. You can imagine the wheat. It's been growing in the fields. It's golden and beautiful. But the wheat and the tares grow together. When the oxen move through the fields, the wheat and the tares brush the underbelly of the oxen. They're both there. But then there's the gathering, the harvest. And after the harvest comes the winnowing, in which with a great wooden fork, the wheat and chaff were thrown into the air. And the chaff would be blown away, as we heard from our passage in Isaiah 41 this morning. But the wheat, that which is useful, falls to the ground. John's point is simply this. This is a symbol of the judgment to come. The one to whom I am pointing is greater than I, says John, because he is the judge of the world. Who holds the winnowing fork? Jesus holds the winnowing fork in his hand. The chaff is thrown, he says, in that day into unquenchable fire, reminding us of the theme of wrath that we saw in his preaching even last week. Remember, give up the wrath of God, you give up the cross, because the cross is all about the wrath of God being appeased by Christ. Give up wrath, give up the cross, give up the cross then you give up salvation. But the idea that John wants us to understand here is that on that great day of judgment, there will be no more gospel proclamation. There will be no more preaching of the cross. Who is the judge? Jesus. 
And oh, to be without him on that day, what an awful thing to contemplate. John Owen somewhere said, nothing in hell is more full of horror and confusion than the minds of men destitute of heavenly light, and all light will be gone in that day. If God ignored sin, he would no longer be God. If he did not have wrath on sin, he would no longer be the God of love, grace, and goodness that he is. And there would be no atonement for sin. So we have a profound truth here. Our response to the preaching of this Christ, whether it is John the forerunner or whether it is this morning as we preach of the Christ who has already come and will come again, our response to Christ divides humanity in two. Just turn over to Luke chapter 12, marking your spot here. And remember how the Lord Jesus puts it there. Luke chapter 12, 49 and following. Now this is Jesus speaking. Luke 12, 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The point that John is making, the winnowing fork that divides the wheat and the chaff, the point that Jesus is making in Luke 12 is that his coming divides humanity in two. Either you are with Christ or against Christ. Either you are a believer in Christ alone for your redemption or you are are not. Either you are saved or you are lost. Either you are wheat or you are chaff. And so please remember and get it way down within your souls that there will be no acts of pardon on the other side of the grave. There will be no acts of pardon on the other side of the general judgment and the general resurrection. There will be no act of pardon except that pardon that is received by believers by grace through faith in this day in which we now live. So the great question that comes is this. John says, oh, I'm not the Messiah. He's he's greater than I. He's the judge. The great question then for you to ask and for me is, am I wheat or am I chaff? Am I prepared for that day? Do I know within my heart, within my soul, and within my conscience as I hear this, that I can say, yes, I'm a believer in Christ alone. Yes, I trust Christ alone for my salvation. Yes, he alone is my redeemer from sin. Or do you say, no, as far as I can tell at this stage in my life, I'm not wheat, but I am chaff. I'm not a believer, but I'm lost in sin. We call you to Jesus. We call you to the one greater than John the Baptist and greater than anyone who points to him. We point you to Christ alone. Who can save you from your sin? 
So Jesus is greater, he is stronger, he comes with a greater baptism than John's. Indeed, finally, Jesus will be the judge of the living and the dead. The winnowing fork is in his hand and the day of separation is before us. In Jesus, we see the superior to John. But let's go on. There's another way in this text that we find Jesus' glory and greatness and superiority stressed, and it is this. This is the second thing. Jesus is worth giving your life for. Jesus is worth giving your life for. Now, John is willing to bear the consequence of preaching as Christ's forerunner. Look at verses 18 and following. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them, to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So in preaching as the forerunner of Christ, he was preaching the gospel of Christ, and he rebuked Herod Antipas for marrying Herodias. Both forsook prior marriages. Herodias had been married to Herod's half-brother, which was a violation of the law of God. And Herod seemed to endure it all until the preaching was directed at him. Notice in verse 18, it was good news, but Herod did not receive it as good news. Now think of it for a moment. John had to have known the consequence of preaching against Herod, unless God intervened. He had to have known that he would be imprisoned, and we also know that his life was taken from him. But as A.T. Robertson said, it is part of the equipment of every preacher that he enter the valley of the shadow of death, and John the Baptist was one of them. He was willing to pay the price, speaking the truth without quarter, not fearing the, the face of clay, simply saying, this is what God says, this is his word to you as a leader here in Israel, as the forerunner is about to come, the one to whom I point is about to come. He knew what would happen, but he was willing to pay the price. Why? Because he knew that Jesus was worthy. He knew that Jesus was greater. He knew that Jesus is worth pointing to with one's life because Jesus would go so infinitely deep into the sea of sorrow that our suffering simply leads to glory. He was willing to suffer for Christ. Now, young people, I specifically want to speak to you about this this morning. How are you spending your life? What are the concerns and contemplations of your heart? Uh, Who is the person, what is the thing that you want to serve in this life? I can say, knowing many of you well, that you are on the right track, that by grace, through faith in Christ, Christ is preeminent, and you see these things clearly but perhaps there are some who don't. And it is a tendency of some some young people in the church, and especially in our culture at large, to give their lives to unworthy things, unworthy causes, and to give their lives to those things which eventually will destroy them and destroy others. So let me ask you the question. Do you understand that your life is here to point to Jesus? Do you see that Jesus is worthy of your life no matter where it leads? Why not give your life for grace, young person? Why not give your life for love? 
Why not give your life for good? Why not give your life for your Savior who gave himself for you? Why not give your life to live for him? And why not, if called upon, give your life in death for him? Indeed, all of us are called to die daily, but some of us are called to die a martyr's death. You know, there's a view of death in the Bible that transcends all of the fear that comes upon humanity because we know Jesus. Francis Landy Patton, one of the great Princeton professors of old, old Princeton Seminary, when it was a great place indeed, when he was preaching on one occasion, there was a column beside the pulpit. He said, this is the high water mark of immortality in the Old Testament. Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. That's the high water mark of immortality in the Old Testament. Willing to go, but wanting to stay. But then he came to the New Testament, and he reached into Paul's letter to the Philippians, and he said, this is the high water mark of Faith in immortality in the New Testament. Paul's saying, for I am in a strait between two, having a desire to, to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to abide in the flesh is more needful for you. This is the high water mark of faith in immortality in the New Testament, willing to stay, but wanting to go. In the Old Testament, willing to go but wanting to stay. In the New Testament, willing to stay but wanting to go. Young person, are you willing to give your life for the cause of God and truth, for your Savior? Do you remember the name Lizzie Atwater, a young missionary in China during the Boxer Rebellion, married to a young preacher, pregnant? She wrote this letter to her parents. August 3rd, 1900. Dear ones, I long for a sight of your dear faces, but I fear we shall not meet on earth. I am preparing for the end very quietly and calmly. The Lord is wonderfully near, and he will not fail me. I was very restless and excited while there seemed a chance of life, but God has taken away that feeling. And now I just pray for grace to meet the terrible end bravely. The pain will soon be over, and oh, the sweetness of the welcome above. My little baby will go with me. I think God will give him to me in heaven, and my dear mother will be so glad to see us. I cannot imagine the Savior's welcome. Oh, that will compensate for all of these days of suspense. Dear ones, live near to God and cling less closely to earth. There is no other way by which we can receive that peace from God which passeth understanding. I must keep calm and still these hours. I do not regret coming to China, but am sorry I have done so little. My married life, two precious years, have been so very full of happiness. We will die together, my dear husband and I. I used to dread separation. If we escape now, it will be a miracle. I send my love to all of you and the dear friends who remember me. Twelve days after her letter was written, Lizzie Atwater and her husband and the six missionaries there 
were hacked to death by the guards. But later, Lizzie's parents in Oberlin, Ohio, when they heard this awful and dreadful news of the death of their daughter, their son-in-law, and unborn grandchild, said this through their tears. We do not begrudge them. We gave them to that needy land, China. China will yet believe the truth. I ask you, young people, I ask all of us, was it worth it? Was it worth it? Was it? Was it worth it? Will you contemplate that question in your heart? Yes, it was worth it. Because Jesus was pointed to by their lives. Because Lizzie Atwater was bought with the price of the precious blood of Jesus. And this was the road that Christ would have her tread to bring glory to his name. The point is, Jesus is worth giving your life for. He is worth living for. He is worth dying for daily. And if called, he is worth dying for. There's another way the text shows that Jesus is glorious and superior, and that is that he is the Son of God. And so in verses 21 and 22, let us refresh our memories. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, Luke does not address the meaning of Jesus' baptism in some overt way. He doesn't tell us, as Matthew does, that he was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. He doesn't give us hints along the way so that we could understand that the sinless Son of God submitted to baptism because he is the representative of his people who would take upon himself our sin. All of that is true of Jesus' baptism, but Luke doesn't stress that or focus there. Luke focuses on Christ's exaltation in Trinitarian testimony. Here is the incarnate Son of God coming to be baptized. The Holy Spirit comes upon him in the form of a dove, and there is a a voice from heaven as the heavens are opened, saying, This is my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Which is a reference, undoubtedly, perhaps to several Old Testament passages, but especially to the 42nd chapter of Isaiah, we looked at it Wednesday in Vespers, the first servant song in which Jehovah says about his servant, his son who would come, behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, he will bring forth justice to the nations." So what we see here is Jesus' superiority to John, Jesus' superiority to all, because he is the beloved son of the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is co-equal with the Father, now anointed as the God-man to fulfill his call for us, as we will see unfolded throughout Luke's gospel. You know, in Isaiah 64, we have that passage, Oh, that you would rim the heavens and come down. And here we have it. The heavens have been opened. Christ has come. The voice from heaven comes. And that rimmed in heaven, that openness of heaven, has been open ever since for all who put their trust in the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you? 
And so he is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, fulfilling the calling of the Father to come into this world and to shed his blood for sinners like us. Now, two themes stand out preeminently in all that we have seen in this text this morning. Two things. The first thing that stands out preeminently is self-abasance. Self-abasance. Verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. John the Baptist standing before a king like Herod with no fear, proclaiming the truth, yet says, I'm not worth, worthy to untie the sandals of Jesus Christ. The one who is coming is so superior that I am not worthy of performing the most menial task of the most menial slave in my culture. I can't even remove his sandals in good conscience. That's our calling too. My calling is in light of the cross of Jesus to pour contempt on all my pride. Our calling is to go low so that in our affections and as the world sees us, he may be exalted high. Because he infinitely great went infinitely low when he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. I was reading a letter of F.B. Meyer this week, who was a well-known minister, 19th century, early 20th century. And as he wrote this letter, he was aware of his fame as he was preaching all over in conferences and was becoming very well-known in England and in America. But F.B. Meyer said, as he thought of his fame, He said, it makes one want to creep into heaven unnoticed. I have a question for you. Christian, does Christ need to be enthroned anew in your heart and in your conscience? Have we become so full of ourselves that we no longer abase ourselves daily? No longer exalt him, but we live for those things that do not matter and do not count. And then the second thing that is really coordinate with self-abasement is the glory of Christ that you see in this text. He's strong. He has a twofold baptism. He's the judge. He's worthy of your lives. He's God's son who infinitely condescended. How can we place our love on anything before him? How can we place our affections on anything else but him? Any one but him? Any truth is found only in him. Do you see his beauty? Do you see his loveliness? Do you see his grandeur? Do you see his sufficiency? Can you say, as Thomas Guthrie, one of our Scottish forefathers, said, Ah, dear friends, he can and will be all in all to us. Am I wounded? He is balm. Am I sick? He is medicine. Am I naked? He is clothing. Am I poor? He is wealth. Am I hungry? He is bread. Am I thirsty? He is water. Am I tried? He is my advocate. 
is sentence passed and I am condemned, he is my pardon. Oh, blessed Jesus, whose cross of shame has become the sinner's crown of justification. These things being so, he demands, he calls upon you to give your heart, your life, your all, holding nothing back, giving to him your life, living for him, dying for him daily, serving him, exalting him as Lord and Master, bowing the knee every day and saying, I'm purchased at the high cost of your blood. You've redeemed me. I belong to you. I will serve you, Lord. I will serve you. And so the point of your life, young person, the point of your life, you don't have to question the point of your life. You may have to work through what is my specific vocation in life or to what school will I go. Or, but the point of your life, if you are a believer in Christ, it's the point of your life even if not. You're called to put your faith in him. The point of your life, the point of your life is to know and exalt Christ. That's it. The point of your life is to know and to exalt Christ in your calling, in your life, in the things through which the Lord takes you to get self out of the way, to exalt him. The point of your life is to know him and to exalt him and glorify him. That's it. That's your calling. And if we grasp that and understand that and live out of the fullness of that, what a Christian you will be, what a church we will be to the glory of God. And if there were 10,000 heavens, he could not be set too high. Amen? Amen. Amen.